have no games on the schedule this week, but they are scheduled to hit the ice at Rogers Arena this morning. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host, as always, he is Canucks insider Thomas Drance. You can read his work covering the Canucks at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. And Drancer, it is a far cry from a hockey game with fans in attendance happening at Rogers Arena. But I got to say, I did not expect to be back live at the rink watching the Canucks skate on the ice surface here, certainly until after the holiday break. So, in half an hour, we'll see what practice looks like for the Canucks. And, hey, at least we have this to hold us over for a little bit. Well, and, you know, there's an opportunity here for Bruce Boudreaux, who met this team midseason and didn't have a training camp and didn't have, you know, they've been using morning skates to install neutral zone forechecking systems and all sorts of complicated teaching practices that they've been rushing through in morning skate. If he's able to get in a few days of isolated, focused work with this team, you know, there, there could be benefits to that. Now, that said, if you ask Bruce Boudreau, and, and we will ask him after this practice, would you rather keep going with a hot team or would you rather have a pause and at least try to use it productively? He'd take keep the streak yes. running. You, you never want to lose momentum when you're on the sort of improbable, fantastic, ex- exhilarating run that the Canucks were on. And so, yeah, so as the NHL itself is hour to hour, as fully a third of the teams around the league have their facilities closed, it is a good sign for the Canucks in terms of contained spread that they're able to gather in this setting and do a practice today. And we'll see how it unfolds. We'll see what type of work they get in. I I do think there are some ways to shape this to have some meaningful hockey utility for the club. But, um, you know, the big takeaway, I think, for me is... They wouldn't be doing this if there were continued positives because they did scrub Friday's practice for precautionary reasons related presumably to the fact that Mott was added to the COVID protocol that day. Tyler Myers the day after. That seems like a wise decision. Um, But clearly there's no further uh, growth within the club and they're able to skate today. And that anyway is something we can at least sort of look at and say, good, the, the spread was contained within the Canucks facility to the point where they may be able to get in some work before Christmas. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. If you've got thoughts or even questions about exactly what the Canucks are going through, what's going uh, on around the NHL right now, hit us up. 650-650 is the number. And it's an important distinction to make, Drancer, that you mentioned there, right? That the Canucks, yes, they have had their, they've had their games postponed at least through the holiday break, and that was – First, specifically, their games against Toronto and Arizona over the weekend, of course, were postponed. Then the NHL and the PA decided to postpone all games involving cross-border travel until after Christmas. So that meant the Canucks game in San Jose this week that was scheduled for Tuesday. Also, their game here at Rogers Arena that was scheduled for Thursday this week. Both of those, for now, wiped out, will not happen as scheduled. But as you point out, there's a difference between having your games postponed and being shut down. And we've seen a lot of teams around the league get shut down. Columbus and Montreal, the latest teams to be officially, you know, completely put on hold, have their facilities closed at least through the holiday break. So it's very much looking for a silver lining here because they do still have, you know, players on the in COVID protocol. Yuho Lamico, Brad Hunt, Tucker Pullman, Luke Shen, Tyler Mott, Tyler Myers all remain in COVID protocol. So 
that's a major, major concern, obviously, for the team. But to your point, they're not completely shut down. They're still able to do team activities. And again, it's a silver lining, but it is a real silver lining for the Canucks right now. Just to get people caught up on a little bit what's going on around the NHL as as it comes to COVID. And as I said, Canucks games postponed through the holiday break at least. Right now, the team's next game scheduled to be December 27th against the Seattle Kraken. We'll see. I mean, I think everyone knows that things can change very, very quickly uh, right now. And in terms of Olympic participation, again, obviously hot button topic, the word is that it's it's done. We're just waiting for an official announcement. And that's been from Elliot Friedman, from Frank Saravelli, from a number of insiders around the game that NHL players will not be uh, going to the Winter Olympics in Beijing this year. Now, to get back to the Canucks situation specifically, Drancer, and, and I do want to talk about kind of the opportunity that presents itself for Bruce Boudreaux, as you mentioned, to joined this team mid-season, has really been just trying to install his systems, put his stamp on the team on the fly. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but just looking at, okay, so they've they've postponed these games through the holiday break, through Christmas. They're scheduled to get back on the ice for a competitive game on December 20th, December 27th, 27th excuse yeah. me, against the Seattle Kraken. I mean, where do you see not just the Canucks schedule situation going, but the NHL schedule situation going? It's so difficult to predict because yeah. so much is changing day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour, whatever you want. But just, I guess, what does your gut tell you about, about where this is headed right now? Well, you know, all bets were off for me when you scrubbed that Saturday game against the Leafs because that was going to be 100% attendance, a red hot Canucks team, you know, with new management playing the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? I mean, that's the four-TV holiday bonanza that you're waiting for. That's the home date, you know, absolutely filled to the brim, you know, high caps in terms of the amount that people are spending on drink and food and entertaining and on and on. Like, for me, the moment you scrub that game, that is so serious, right? Like, it has to be so serious for that game to be scrubbed because that's like a crown jewel game between two top five revenue teams and two of the top teams in terms of Canadian language or sorry, Canadian English language viewership in this country. Right. So to lose those games, um, you know, that to me was a real sign of just how serious this has gotten as a situation for the league. Uh, You know, we've seen now cross border games be scrubbed. That makes a ton of sense considering Jim Rutherford's comments over the weekend about how reluctant Canucks players were to travel to San Jose last week. Um, you know, I, I think over the weekend it became pretty clear that the Canucks wouldn't play before Christmas. Uh, I sort of got wind of it just a little bit before the news broke yesterday that, that that would be the case. I still think that the games on the other side of Christmas are very much an hour-to-hour consideration for the league as the COVID situation around the NHL evolves and around North America. And it's going to be very interesting to see what comes next, especially as – you know, the NFL moves to a more targeted testing yep. protocol, which is that you don't test asymptomatic players. Um, you know, Ryan O'Reilly, Steve Eiserman have come out in favor of that. Connor Hellebuck a little bit less um, pointed on that topic, but but addressed it. And Jim Rutherford, I asked Jim Rutherford about it uh, just over the uh, weekend when he did his sort of COVID availability. And his comments were, I thought, pretty fascinating in terms of, you know, he's open to it so long as experts and doctors, which he is not, sign off. Uh, He'd need to understand it more, but if everyone's comfortable with that, that's something he'd consider too. And I thought that was a very reasonable reaction, all told, from the Canucks top executive. 
And it's going to be interesting to see because I don't think it's really going to be a league or a PA decision. Obviously, it will be at, at the end yes. of the day. But there's so many different stakeholders involved, including in, in the case of the NHL and something that the NFL doesn't really deal with or doesn't deal with at all, cross-border travel and the mechanics of that and how that would work should the NHL decide to scale back their protocol uh, or not scale back, but certainly refine it in terms of how they identify COVID-positive cases within the league. You know, it's going to be a fascinating exercise to see how they get this season in during a seasonal wave with a new variant that seems to be finding a lot of new infections. And and I do think, too, part of part of what will ultimately determine the outcome, I'd imagine, is where we're at in terms of, you know, societal risk yeah. over the course of the next two, three weeks. And, and that's an enormously difficult thing to project or or model or, or try and sort of guess at. And, and I won't try that here. That's not what sports talks for. But no. it is going to be very, very interesting to see exactly how the league grapples with this situation and, and what steps are taken to try and get the season in. Well, and to your point about, you know, it's going to reflect what's happening in society at large. That's certainly true, I think, as the Canadian government is concerned with the NHL's testing protocols and cross-border travel. And that's always been the thing that really makes the NHL stand out from other sports as they attempt to navigate, you know, the the pandemic for the last almost two years at this point is the cross-border travel, right? That's right. They had to completely rearrange uh, their divisions for the year, have the Canadian division to avoid cross-border travel. That's always going to be a major challenge for the NHL. But, you know, as you said, a lot of this will depend on where we are at society. I saw just before we went on the show, not that long ago, that Quebec introduced you know, a whole host of new restrictions, including closing things like gyms, theaters, bars, right? Going to zero capacity for all sporting events. Those are major, major new, new restrictions that certainly could, you know, impact how the NHL operates uh, in different jurisdictions going forward. So there's a lot we don't know right now. Again, the Canucks are scheduled to resume their schedule on December 27th against the Seattle Kraken. As you said, kind of hour to hour is the best way to describe everything in the NHL right now. And I will say Canucks players are starting to filter onto the ice for the scheduled practice at 11.30 at Rogers Arena. We will get you all of the latest information from that practice as we can. But the question for me now, Drancer, really becomes, like we have seen how determined the NHL is to, when they have a game on the schedule, they're going to do absolutely everything they can to play that game, right? And we saw that firsthand here in Vancouver when the Flames and the Canucks had to play out the string in those bizarre games at the end of last season, right? The NHL is going to do everything it absolutely can to get these games in to play a full 82-game season. Now, will that ultimately be possible? We'll have to wait and see. But for me, the question is, how many different things are they willing to consider, right? How many different ideas are they willing to consider? And I just look at right now, you know, okay, no cross-border travel for games. Well, that's a lot more sustainable for American teams than it is for Canadian teams because there's so many more American teams that play so many, you know, so, such a bigger percentage of their games against each other. Do you have to rearrange the schedule, right? Do you have to, okay, get the Flames in Vancouver, get the Canucks in Calgary to play some of their games on the schedule? Do you have to... Oh, that's, change the schedule altogether. It's at some so point. complicated because the it schedule is, is re, you know, reflects like various teams. You know, you go west, you hit all of the western yep. teams. You hit California, then you hit Seattle, then you hit Vancouver, then maybe you hit Alberta on your way back if you're a team like Florida or, or what have you, right? Like it's so complicated to get into sort of changing up the schedule, which is why you know the league has built this schedule in with some flexibility, right? In terms of the Olympic break, but also in terms of 
free agency occurring far later than we're used to, right? Yeah. July 13th, I think, right? Or is it the draft? Yeah, the July 13th, the draft is also occurring in July. One interesting thing we're watching just as Canucks skaters begin to step out on the ice here is they're coming out of both the visiting and the home tunnel, which is indicative of, you know, a, a level of uh, social distancing or physical distancing beyond what they've been behaving with all season. So, you know, even today, even as the Canucks do something relatively normal, we can see the seams of adjusting yep. to to this new reality and, and how how and where that adjustment ends is anyone's guess. And, like, I really think it's tough to predict because I think the NHL is doing everything in their power to get ga- as many games in as they can and what that will look like on the other side of the break. I mean, you know, I have no idea, and I don't think teams themselves do either. They're just sort of, you know, this is a read-and-react moment for all of us, including the Canucks and including the NHL. Yeah, and as you said, you know, look – if you're not shut down, great. Take this opportunity to get on the ice and practice together. But everything is hour by hour, seeing what develops, seeing how you can make the most out of opportunities as they come your way. The point about them coming out of the home and visitors' dressing rooms right now is really interesting because the Canucks are kind of in a fascinating position here where they had you know, probably the most severe COVID outbreak in North American professional sports in March, and now they're back dealing with, you know, an outbreak right now that doesn't necessarily stand out compared to other teams around the NHL, but is still serious, right? Six of their players in COVID protocols at the moment. And I, I think it's kind of interesting just to, to take stock of how the Canucks have addressed this situation. And from your perspective, Drancer, I mean, what would you say that the Canucks, just by exhibiting the type of behavior they have over the last week or so, what would you say that they've learned about how to deal with COVID situations like this in the middle of an NHL season? Yeah, the one, I mean, the one that stands out to me the most, obviously, is the decision to not skate, which was a player-driven decision to not hold the morning skate on Tuesday. Yeah. And with what we know now of the timeline, you know, if they'd skated, they would have skated with Brad Hunt and, well, Brad Hunt for sure, who tested and was confirmed positive, right? Yeah and entered the protocol later that day. But also Tucker Pullman, who entered the protocol later that day, appears to have then had a couple of negatives but couldn't at, at any point get off of COVID protocol. So is what, what I believe they call a presumed positive as opposed to a confirmed, confirmed positive. Yes. So, But nonetheless, in COVID protocol. So two players who then end up in COVID protocol within 12 hours of that skate not occurring. You know, the fact that this has been contained at six players, considering – because here's the other thing. We talked about the border being an interesting factor for hockey. The other thing that's a different factor for hockey is team-to-team transmission is much higher yep. on a sport that, that occurs on an ice surface that causes uh, aerosols to be suspended at a certain height above the ice sheet, right? Like there is a level of spread or viral spread risk that athletes take on in this arena, like during the game itself or during on-ice activity itself, that is not true of a widely outdoor and, and far more spaced sport than football, right? Team-to-team transmission is extremely rare in the NFL. So they're able to relax their uh, testing protocol, for example, uh, in in part because of border dynamics. They only have one government to deal with, right? One federal authority to deal with. And also in part because, you know, the the risk of team-to-team transmission is lower. And so... You know, it's going to be really interesting. That, that's sort of another interesting factor here is it, as, you know, the, the seasonal nature of COVID and the new variant sort of begins to be a top line consideration for everybody. 
you know, how does hockey itself, considering the nature of the competition that these athletes are engaged in, adjust to that? That's sort of the other thing I'm looking for. But I do sort of wonder if the fact that this spread was contained to the point that we're able to practice today, like how much of that is a direct through line from the Canucks being as cautious and Canucks players being as cautious as they were yeah. last week. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say definitively. I don't know. But I, I do I do sort of wonder about that and, and wonder about it in a way um, that certainly makes Canucks players who dealt with the outbreak last year look pretty wise. Well, there's a lot. Again, we'll you know, we'll likely get some more of these details as the situation unfolds and as they start to hopefully come out of the COVID situation that they're in right now. But you're right, because what we've heard from the players publicly and what we've heard kind of from sources and from people who are well connected to the organization is that, you know, there was real legitimate concern and wariness from the players. And and to your point, Drancer, I mean, look, they're here skating on the ice at Rogers Arena now when a bunch of other teams have been shut down for the holidays. And that's not to say that those teams did anything wrong. Like, you can do everything right and still find yourself in that situation. But so far, what we've seen from the Canucks in this instance of the, of the you know, COVID-19 breakout on their team, I think it speaks really highly – of the players, but also of the organization for listening to the players and being willing to, you know, being willing to trust what the players are telling them and take those feelings really seriously and act on those feelings. And that's kind of the other thing that stands out here to me is, I mean, man, Jim Rutherford, first couple of weeks on the job, and he is throwing right into the fire here in Vancouver, asked to deal with a really tricky situation, right, where a lot of the players involved still have memories from last year when something similar to this went down. And, you know, I have to say, so much was made about the Canucks needing to find an executive who could be a better public communicator in this hockey market. And it hasn't exactly been about a hockey issue so far, although he did address a lot of hockey issues at his introductory press conference. But so far, I mean, I think Jim Rutherford is acing the test of his communication skills and his ability to communicate even really difficult circumstances with the Canucks. Yeah, he's got a straightforward style that uh, I think has immediately earned trust Right, and, and yep. he's such a credible messenger because of his resume, anyway. But it but it goes beyond that to the way that he delivers things, right? The way that he takes on tough questions. I mean, I asked him about changing the NHL's protocol, their their health protocol, and he began the answer with, you know, I don't know that I have an opinion on that. Discussed the limitations of his knowledge at length, and then went into you know an, an issue about how important it would be to get the full season in. And I just thought, perfect, right? Like. Yep. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to duck a hard question either. You can be honest about it, and it's not headline news. It's just interesting commentary from a guy who knows the business. Like, that is fantastic stuff in, in addressing even, even a more challenging or complicated or potentially controversial question in a market that, you know, has sort of a, a pretty different type of view of COVID than a lot of the other markets around the league, right? I mean, when Ryan O'Reilly says and advocates for or Steve Eiserman in Detroit, right, yeah. in Michigan or Missouri, when you're advocating for a different approach to COVID testing, it's a very different message than <laughs> it's received by a different, very different audience than it would be in British Columbia. And so, you know, I thought he handled that really well. I think he's handled a lot of things really well. He's been available. He's uh, met with the press twice at an ad hoc basis just to discuss and give updates on the COVID outbreak. I think that's extraordinarily welcome. I think it's a level of transparency that looks good on him and the organization. And it is in stark relief from, from what came before it. I mean, Rutherford has been around. He knows this business. He knows the game. 
He hasn't worked in a Canadian market, certainly hasn't worked in a market like Vancouver, but he's clearly got a pretty good sense for, you know, how to give the public the types of answers they need in a way that makes the club look like they're in control of the situation, even if it's something like COVID, which no one is in no, control yes. of. As we, all, as we all know too well, no one is truly in control. But I, I was also really struck by his willingness to... You know, just say, look, I don't have all the answers right now. I don't have all the information. I might not even have enough information to form an opinion because I think that's extremely relatable for a lot of us, right? Like, we all do our best to try to keep up with what, you know, public health authorities and scientists and doctors are saying about the pandemic. But, you know, I was on, I was doing the morning show today uh, with Israel Fair, and we had a lot of people texting in, hey, what do you think about Steve Eisenman's comments? They're doing it in the NFL. Should the NHL do it? And, you know, my perspective is very similar to Jim Rutherford's. I, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand, but I don't have anywhere near the expertise or the information to say whether that approach makes sense for the NHL. And I do think it's refreshing to hear from somebody with his resume who's also, you know, not shy to admit, hey, I need a little bit more information. That's not my area of expertise. And in kind of a funny way, being willing to say you don't have all the answers, it can build a lot of trust down the road when people are looking to you for hard answers at a certain point, right? The fact that you, you you have that reputation and a deserved reputation for honesty can go a long way down the road. And I think that's what we've seen so far from Jim Rutherford. And look, there's, you know, he's so early in his tenure and it remains to be seen what he wants to do with this roster and how he builds out his front office. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the show, but just kind of the, the building blocks of building his reputation, building that credibility, rebuilding that trust. So far, he's doing everything you could ask for him again in a very short time on the job. So the Canucks continue to take to the ice here at Rogers Arena. Bruce Boudreaux on the ice along with his team. And, you know, off the top of the show, Drance, you mentioned a bit of a an opportunity here for the Canucks, right? No, no games on the schedule, but they are still allowed to partake in team activities. They're allowed to get on the ice together and... Look, we've seen what Bruce Boudreaux has been able to do with this team already, leading them to a 6-0 record under his tenure since he took over. And now he's got a chance to actually you know, get into the nitty-gritty, you would think, a little bit with his team. Start trying to put his stamp on how they play in a more kind of comprehensive manner. From your perspective, Drancer, I mean, what would you expect the focus on, if anything, systems-wise, tactically, whatever the case may be, from Bruce Boudreaux over the next few days here? Well, you know, one thing I want to alert our audience to, so Luke Shen is on the ice, um, number two, wearing black, stretching right there in front of you. And, you know, he was, of course, the first Canuck to be placed in the COVID protocol. Um, So pretty interesting. This looks like a pretty well-attended skate so far. That's what's standing out to me, too. I was expecting, you know, maybe eight to ten, something like that. But, yeah, we're we're seeing good numbers here so far. Yeah, this looks like almost the full team, maybe 20-ish. Uh, there's still a few guys who haven't filtered out. There's lots of jersey colors. Looks like the um, first line's in green now. Uh, Pod Colson's the only guy of Garland, Pedersen, Pod Colson out, but that looks like the red line. So, um, you know, <laughs> not not the cherry-picking line. Not that they'll be standing <laughs> at the red line waiting for a pass, but that's the red line. So, you know, a new approach we're already seeing in terms of just how the team colors itself, right, how the team organizes itself in the dressing room ahead of practice. Um, you know, in terms of what we see today, you're down so many personnel, right? Potentially. Although Luke Shen's attendance is a bit of a surprise to me, right? So, yep. I mean, who knows? Uh, we'll have to see exactly who comes on here. But you're down so many personnel that I do think you have to be 
probably a little more prescribed in some of what you'd like to work through because, for example, you're down, you know, one of your top minutes leaders on defense in Tyler Myers, right? So how much work can neutral zone forechecking, like how much benefit does it have without a guy who's going to be executing yeah. it for 20 minutes a night? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's certain things that are going to be tougher to, to sort of install into a partial group, as it were. Um, you know, the, so we'll sort of see, but it's... I'm I'm very curious actually to see exactly how they approach this practice and also how they approach the rest of this week. Is this a one-off before Christmas, or is there going to be multiple practices before the 23rd when the team would have at that point sort of taken a couple days? That's yeah. that's sort of the big one that I'm like I'm more interested to hear volume and thought process from Bruce after practice than I am to see what they work on during it. Yeah, and if anything else, if nothing else, it's a chance for Boudreaux to just keep building that familiarity, keep building that rapport with his team again as he you know we talked about Jim Rutherford being thrown right into it with so little time on the job Bruce Boudreaux doesn't predate Jim Rutherford by all that long so he is still very fresh here in Vancouver with the Canucks as well and you got to think he's just you know grateful for every opportunity at this point to skate with the team but it will be interesting to hear what Boudreaux has to say to the media after practice concludes again Canucks practice just about to officially get underway here at Rogers Arena and we do expect a media availability following the conclusion of practice won't happen during our show drancer uh but you will hear that in an entirety here on the home of the canucks sportsnet 650 lots more coming up on the canucks hour 650 650 is the dunbar lumber text message inbox get your questions thoughts comments anything having to do with the vancouver canucks hit us up we'll read as many as we can in the next hour we already have a question about the possibility of the Canucks making more additions to their front office. We will tackle that and more. It's the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. It is the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your official home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz, Canucks insider, who also covers the team at The Athletic, here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. And as Canucks practice officially gets underway here at Rogers Arena, Bruce Boudreaux just finished some teaching time around the whiteboard on the side. The players now taking their places to get the drill started. And as we mentioned just before the break, Drancer, this is a very well-attended, you know, I was a little bit surprised the team was skating today. I, I didn't know exactly what the numbers would look like at the rink here, but this is a very well-attended Canucks practice right now. Yes, yeah, so we've got 17 bodies on the ice uh, for practice. Um, they're a Going through line rushes like now, like Hughes and Shen look like they're a pair again, which yep. uh, with Shen being back. 17 skaters all told. Mott, Myers, Juleson, Lamico, Hunt, Pullman, Brisebois are the absentees. Brisebois, of course, was injured in that Sharks game, so I think that would explain it, although he has not been added to IR as of 9 a.m. Noah Juleson, um, you know, I'm wondering if Noah Juleson has been reassigned. I'll work to confirm that before the show ends, but he is not on the ice either, nor is he appearing on the NHL roster. So I, I suspect that Noah Juleson has been reassigned, but I'll work to confirm that. Um, so, yeah, so basically we've got the five guys in COVID protocol yep. minus Luke Shen, who is on the ice. 
uh, Brisebois and Juleson being the only absentees uh, that are not explained by that. And as they go through their lines, it looks very much like what we would expect based on how they lined up when last we saw the club play in San Jose. And so very much a full complement of players. As you said, Juleson and Brisebois, the only absentees who are not on the COVID protocol list. And those could easily both be explained by either injury in the case of Brisebois or by Noah Juleson being reassigned to Abbotsford. And if that is the case, then that means you have every healthy available player uh, who's not on the COVID-19 protocols at this practice for the Canucks at Rogers Arena right now. We will get an update from the team when they speak to media uh, after practice about all of the uh, latest information about COVID. Now, you know, obviously the fact that we're seeing all these guys out on the ice is very, very good news as far as the Canucks containing the spread and limiting the number of players who have to spend any sort of time on the NHL's COVID-19 protocols list. We will keep you updated as this continues. Again, Canucks practice just officially underway here at Rogers Arena. Uh, this text came in from Adam, the former Bath guy, who says, Hey, Thomas, what have you heard, if anything, about the possibility of Jennifer Botterill joining the Canucks in a management role? And, of course, this broke over the weekend. Gary Mason, longtime columnist based out of Vancouver, covered the Canucks for a lot of years, now works for the Globe and Mail. And he reported over the weekend that, you know, Jim Rutherford, as we've heard Rutherford say, that he would be interested in hiring maybe some non-traditional candidates to uh, contribute to the Canucks front office. We heard from Gary Mason that the Canucks are specifically looking at uh, three candidates from the world of women's hockey, Jennifer Botterill, Jana Hefford, and Angela Ruggiero. And Adam, the former bath guy, asking specifically about Jennifer Botterill, who, of course, does fantastic work on the Hockey Night in Canada panel. And this is an interesting question to me, Drancer, because I think there's, you know, one, the question about the specific candidates and Botterill, as part of that. And then there's also the overall conversation and questions about the philosophy that Jim Rutherford is going to use as he continues to build his front office here for the Canucks. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I haven't heard a ton um, beyond that. The industry believes that Botterill is a leading candidate um, and she'd be a great candidate. I think she'd be a fantastic fit with this management group. I think the big thing to look for as Rutherford builds this out, right? So here's, here's what I can tell you basically about, what Rutherford seems to be doing from what I'm gathering in the industry. Yeah. He's certainly looking for a senior director level analytics voice, right? Yep. He's certainly looking for a general manager, although I think there is a creeping recognition that that may have to wait here, um, that that might be the toughest job to fill. Um, you know, my, my, the, my sense of it, my sense of it, and, and I want to be careful that I'm not reporting this, my sense of it is um, just based on sort of trying to piece together and make sense of all the snippets that are coming to me. My sense of it is that I believe that his preference would be to have a GM who is like a hockey operations logistics, like an executor, like, right. a, guy, like a guy who does that sort of thing, as opposed to, you know, a guy with an amateur scouting portfolio, right? Which a lot of the names being linked to the Canucks in a GM role, whether it's a Mark Hunter or a Patrick Alvin, um, you know, those are, those are amateur scouting types. So, you know, the, <laughs> the, uh, sense that I have, though, is that there are guys around the industry, um, you know, who have worked for Rutherford before, but also who have not, right, who Rutherford would be very keen to talk to, although some of the leading candidates are guys their teams don't want to lose. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of scuttlebutt about a Chris McFarland, for example, but, Sc but Chris McFarland is not the type of executive that teams want to lose in season. And often, in fact, as we saw, for example, when Colorado themselves tried to poach Kyle Dubas from Toronto, 
Uh, those teams will just make those guys GMs a lot of the time, especially if they've got a structure where there is an obvious president of hockey operations type, and you can just promote the guy on top of that. Um, you know, I, I, my understanding or the industry expectation anyway, and I think the expectation internally is that Derek Clancy, the club's new assistant general manager, will conduct a pretty thorough review uh, of a variety of the hockey operations staffers that, that remain, including, you know, scouts on both the pro and the amateur side. Um, you know, there's there's a sense that there'll be a lot of conversations had, uh, both with internal people, but also with other candidates around the league, as Rutherford looks to reshape this group in his own image. And the big picture takeaway from all of this is Rutherford is a guy who's not an analytics guy, but he likes to have an analytics yeah. guy, right? Rutherford is a guy who, when he's been at his best, has had a wide, vast, large array of inputs that he uses to inform his decisions. He's not going to make his... Sometimes he's going to play a hunch. Sometimes he's going to make a bet. He is he is a hockey guy, yeah. for, first and foremost. But, but he is a guy who likes to know what the data says, and then if he's going to bet against it, he'll bet against it. Um, you know, I think that's consistent with someone who wants a full diversity of viewpoints within the front office, too. And I think bringing in, you know, a super qualified... Um, a, a woman candidate, right, like a Jennifer Botterill, who's been an experienced executive and business owner in her own right, a championship-level player, uh, a fantastic broadcaster, a, a great analyst of the game, clearly sharp as a tack when it comes to the sport, uh, that can only help. Like, that can only help this organization if they bring in talent like that with a different type of viewpoint than we're used to. And the thing that stands out for me right now, and look, he's only made the one hire in Derek Clancy, and that was somebody that he had strong ties to yep. from his time in Pittsburgh. But when Jim Rutherford was hired, I think a lot of the conversation immediately went to, okay, Patrick Alvine, okay, Jason Botterill, okay, maybe you can get Sam Ventura, who he worked with in Pittsburgh, out of Buffalo. It was very focused on these are the guys that he has a history with, these are Jim Rutherford's guys, and that's who he's going to lean on to fill out the Canucks front office. And what we're seeing right now uh, and again, yes, the only hire is Derek Clancy, who was there with him in Pittsburgh. But when he's being linked to names like Jennifer Botterill, when he's being linked to names like Chris McFarland, who he doesn't have direct ties to out of Colorado, it suggests that he is doing a much deeper search than that. And I think that has to be seen as a positive sign for Canucks fans, right? The fact that he is not just limiting it to, okay, these are the guys I know. These are guys I trust. These are the people that I have a good working relationship with. I'm actually going to try and, and cast a wide net and find the most talented people that I can to be a part of this team here. Well, you know, the fact, the fact too, there's another, there's another really high-level concern that needs to be addressed here, which is that if you're talking about uh, approaching some of the top AGMs in the league and giving them a significant promotion, um, then you're also talking about spending a fair yep. bit of money within uh, the front office to build a, a world-class structure, to begin to invest money into some of the places outside of the roster that also help you win. And I think that's that's a pretty interesting and a, and a pretty positive sign, too. Um, also, the fact that, you know, we're hearing a lot about the Canucks potentially getting bringing in three assistant general managers. They already have one. Um, you know, they're so so we're, we may be looking at the club hiring a, a, a GM and two AGMs yet. Um, that begins to plus a senior director of analytics and, and presumably some other people, too. Like, um, you know, Rutherford hasn't typically functioned with a director of hockey operations. Like, he, he hasn't typically, right. I think he's let his leadership group handle those logistics. I think he's pretty clearly, from the way he's spoken over the course of the past week, pretty confident in his own ability to manage those logistics. Um, so we'll sort of see exactly how that evolves. But typically speaking, we're talking about a guy who's functioned with 
uh, separate directors for you know human performance, player personnel, amateur, pro, right? Like those four sort of areas in addition to multiple assistant general managers and in this case probably another GM as well. That begins to be a pretty robust group. Uh, if he can identify talented evaluators in all those positions, I think the Canucks will be in a, in a very good spot, particularly when compared with the small tent decision-making process that often sort of reigned under Jim Benning, but also the leanness of resources within the Canucks hockey operations group prior to uh, the, the change. And, and honestly, currently, although it looks like Rutherford's right. beginning to build and it, it And that's just it. There's the two major positives. And it remains to be seen exactly what the front office ends up looking like. You know, it's great to be connected to Chris McFarland, to be connected to Jennifer Botterill, but you actually have to go out and execute those hires and bring in some of these really smart people that you're being linked with right now. But as you said, I mean, one, there's the obvious benefit of in this day and age in the NHL, you want to have a pretty large, pretty robust front office that has a lot of different perspectives because the game and salary cap management and player evaluation, you know, that's a complicated business. You need to have a lot of qualified people at hand that can help you out. So that's hugely important. And then there's the other thing, the, the kind of secondary implication, which is that ownership's willing to spend. You know, It's not cheap to build that sort of front office. And I, I think the biggest... Uh, piece of information that we have or piece of evidence that we have that that's going to be the case. It's just the fact that Jim Rutherford's here as the president of hockey operations, right? And I doubt he would have come to Vancouver to take this job without some assurances from ownership that, hey, you're going to be able to build the front office you want. You're going to be able to hire some really talented people because we are going to make the resources available to you. And you know, we have Mack and Penticton who text in, hey, who is crunching the numbers? Re the cap. I thought they released the guys when JR came aboard. And we've heard that, you know, Jim Rutherford's overseeing that himself right now in conjunction with Central Registry at the NHL. But it does highlight the point. You know, as you said, Drancer, maybe the actual GM hire will have to wait because that's more tricky. You're going after some higher level people that teams really want to retain. That might be an offseason thing. But it does feel like we're going to get more hires whether at the assistant general manager level, whether at the director level, sooner rather than later here. Yeah, well, I, I do think the GM is going to be the toughest one, especially if Rutherford wants to be selective and get a specific type of manager in, um, you know, uh, someone someone with those hardcore hockey operations, logistical chops, yep. someone like, you know, a, a McFarland or like a Jason Botterill, who we worked with closely in um, Pittsburgh, right? Yep. Like those are, those are people who are cap guys and big picture strategy. And, and, you know, I think that would be the maturest type of hire to bring in. Just like if you're going to build a structure and if you're going to have a general manager who reports to a very involved and, and, and like, weighty president of hockey operations which Rutherford will be no matter who he brings yep. in having the guy who's like the guy who solves the problems you know makes a lot of sense just in terms of healthy flow yeah right like just in terms of keeping it all sort of spaced out in a way that makes a ton of sense so like like the executive officer on a submarine <laughs> I, I don't know enough about <laughs> submarine politics 
Um, is that like the I'm just chief thinking political of the great, officer? I'm just thinking of, the, you know, you ever watch a submarine movie? Which All are the time, great, by I the love way. submarine Fantastic movies. Fantastic submarine U571, movies. U 571, underrated. Great movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's always the, the captain who says the order, and then the executive officer sure. has to repeat the order to put it into and motion. Who, who, who just wants to go to Montana, and the moment that he says he's going to go to Montana, you know he's going <laughs> to pass away at some point yes, during the film. Exactly. You know it's all over you, you for know, him. You know what I'm talking about, Hunt for Red October stands. Let's <laughs> oh, yeah. go. Oh, yeah. uh, Crimson you know, Tide, another great one. I, you know, I'm not a big Crimson oh, Tide guy. Oh no, I think Crim- it's fine. It's fine, but it's not as good. It's not as it's not in the Das Boot. Yeah. Um, Hunt for Red October. U five seven one tier yeah. for me. U five seven one does not get enough. U five seven one is a fantastic. And, and movie. I'm like honestly, I, now that it's been brought up, I'm watching it this week for sure with my wife's dad. No, nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a perfect. It is a perfect father-in-law movie. U five seven one. Really, anything set on a ship, on a submarine in particular. Uh, great, great father-in-law you know, movies. We've gone forty-six minutes, and yeah, we yeah, haven't we talked about. We got to get into it. We got to talk about Demko's equipment, yeah. right? So Demko has taken the ice, and he took the ice well before morning skate. And I've tweeted out a sort of a, a, what his mask is an homage to. But so he's wearing all black CCM pads. He's wearing ret- a retro blocker and glove with shades of brown in them. And most importantly, he is wearing a mask that looks like almost a direct tribute. To Kirk McLean's 1993-94 Stanley Cup mask, Stanley Cup final mask, while he wore it all playoff run, and the back plate is has a zombie on it because, of course, it's uh, Demko and he's got a fondness for a zombie version of Johnny Canuck that him and his dad designed together. And look, it's not the first time that he's worn flying skate type gear that paid direct tribute to Linden. Of course, he had uh, Lin- the photo of the famous photo of Linden and Trevor Linden. The uh, you know he'll play, he'll play on crutches if you have to, he has to um, moment that photo on his back plate last year or two years ago when he wore the black and white or the sorry the flying skate logo. And so look, it looks looks like Demko is beginning to. You know, I want to say wear in. What do you do when you get a new pair of shoes? Break in. Break in. It's beginning to break in. I don't know why that escaped me. I'm like Homer <laughs> on the wordiness exam, you know? Anyway, um, Demko looks like he's breaking in some gear that would go with the flying skate jersey. So there you go. And, and as we know, there is a groundswell of support amongst the Canucks fan base to bring back in some official capacity, whether it's as their main look or, you know, a regular third jersey that they go to. But there is always that clamoring to introduce the black skate jersey back in the mix. We've seen it as a one-off here or there for the Canucks, but I don't know. I wonder if uh, if Thatcher Demko is going to add his, add his voice, either implicitly or explicitly, to all of those Canucks fans that want to see them rocking the black skate. What... I, I'm curious for your take on the black skate trance because I look at it. It's nice. It's, it's, you know, obviously there's the nostalgia. You know, I was the perfect age to be all caught up in the 1994 Stanley Cup run. So I get it. But I also look at it and think, you know, doesn't this team just need some consistency on the colors and logos and branding level for once in their tenure, in their history in the NHL? Maybe just hold off on changing everything about how your team looks for a little bit here. I don't know. Am I crazy for thinking that? Sir, you're not a fan of well, the Well, it's not that I'm game. not a fan. It's just they, 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 this team, the history of their branding in the NHL has been constant change and constant flux. And I just think at a certain point, don't you have to stick with something, right? And and I like I like the green and the blue look that they have rocking. Is it perfect? No, but 
again, just try to build your brand, build your identity with one stable thing rather than constantly going back and forth. And that's nothing against the black skate. I like it. It's sharp. I think, you know, having it as a third jersey, having some, having it as something you break out a couple times a year makes sense. But the desire to go back to it as the main thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, are there that. people who think that? I think there are. I think we get it, right? We, we get those texts coming in saying, hey, bring bring back the Black Skate full time. No, no, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of that, but I am a big fan of using it as, a, as an alternate. Like, I much yes. prefer it to the, the third alternate, and it's actually the third alternate jersey that got thrown on the ice is that green, yes. um, a green and blue skate in uh, yep, logo. Yep. So, stick and rink, and it's got that weird collar. I think that collar looks terrible. I know the players are fond of that jerseys, but that jersey in particular, but I hate the way the collar looks on the ice. Like it drives me nuts. I would way way rather they use the flying skate logo than that yeah. for a third alternate. But no, you can't go back to that full time. The skate logo itself is the problem. You know the skate logo? Do you know the origin of the skate logo? Tell me. It came from the nineteen eighty two redesign. It was a third it was a third mark from the Flying V redesign that was commissioned so that the team would look, like, scary. And, like, li- literally it's, like, psychobabble that got translated into the those clown uniforms, right? That they – and the skate logo was part of that. It is an indecipherable logo. Do you remember when someone finally pointed out to you that it was a skate and you were like, I know, oh, right? Oh, I thought it was me? a plate of spaghetti. So, look, for me, that logo – like, the affection for that logo is nostalgia run amok. But I love the look of the Canucks in black, red, and yellow on the ice. I think it looks tremendous. And for all of those people who say, like, oh, the green and the blue, though, that's so Vancouver, I always think that the black with uh, orange and yellow or red and yellow is what Vancouver looks like at night. I always think, like, it's nice to have both sort of options in your your, uh, repertoire. Uh, I like the black jerseys a lot. I'm not a huge fan of the logo. I know that makes me a heretic of my own um, to my own degree. I've tried to ask the team to confirm it by the way. Uh, no one will no one will tell me what their plans are for the skate yet. <laughs> and by the way, I'm able to uh, confirm now that um, that uh, Noah Juleson has been reassigned. So there you go. Noah Juleson sent back down to the Abbotsford Canucks and yeah, I, the thing is with the black skate, obviously nostalgia is a huge part of it, but having said that, you know, nostalgia has a place in hockey. It's okay to go to the nostalgia well sometimes, right? Like, that was an important period in the Canucks history. That was a period when I think a lot of our listeners probably became hardcore fans of the Canucks when they went on that run in the 1994 Stanley Cup playoffs. So there's no problem with dipping your toes into nostalgia every once in a while, but I think you just got to gotta keep it in its proper place. And I think we're on the same page here, Drancer, where that is as a third jersey. But it is really I, – I just got to say, I mean, people can go – on Twitter and check out the pictures of Thatcher Demko. The gear that he has on that is kind of throwback and homage to Kirk McLean, it looks very, very sharp, and we'll see if anything comes to it, uh, comes of it as, as uh, concerns the Canucks black skate logo and jersey. We're getting lots of uh, great submissions about submarine movies. Greyhound. Never Greyhound heard, is awesome. Never heard of that one, but there no, you go. No, it's the new Tom Hanks one on, uh, on Apple TV. Let's go. Or Apple Plus, excuse me. Tom Hanks in a submarine movie. It does not get better than that for the dads of North America. That is as good a marriage <laughs> as you could possibly have. Tom Hanks for, in a submarine movie. For the dads movie. of North America, you're right. Yeah, and oh, we also have goodness. somebody else suggesting uh, The Wolf's Call, which I looked up and is uh, a French action thriller film oh, sign uh, me up. set on a submarine from 2019. So sign there you go. Up. Get all of your sweet submarine 
movie recommendations here on the Canucks Hour. A few more minutes. Uh, we were talking about the Canucks' efforts to – and by the way, as I said, you know, are, you asked, are there people out there who want to move to the black jersey permanently? Leaf hater Steve says, love, love, love the black jersey. Let's make it our home jersey. I can't go that far, Steve. I like it, but I can't go that far with you. We were talking about the Canucks' front office search a little bit later – or a little bit earlier on the show, excuse me – Liam texts in, isn't it a little bit backwards to hire all the new assistant general managers first and then hire the GM? Won't it be a harder sell to bring in a GM once their assistants are already hired? And I think, not to simplify it too much, but isn't a big part of that not if you hire good people to be the assistant general managers? I mean, it is. Like, here's the thing is it is a little backwards. It is a little backwards. But but within the framework of a front office that has a president of hockey operations that is is going to be as involved as Jim Rutherford is and is really going to be the rubber stamp, the final big decision maker on hockey decisions, it's a less significant deal than if you had a president of hockey operations who was a little more hands-off or a little more business-oriented, like a John Davidson. In, in that type of environment, yeah, you'd want to have – um, the GM pick his own people, or 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 at least at least be able to come in and suggest a guy right. or two. Um, in this case, in this case though, I think it's just a practical consideration that the club has to account for because of the fact that this club is making these changes in season. It's just not so easy as like picking your favorite people. You have to sort of be deliberate about it, and because of the decisions that they made to really tear the front office down to its studs. You need a sufficient number of people to prepare for the draft, manage the deadline, and leg through this season before you, um, you know, and that might not include the GM. That might not include the GM. You need a baseline level of advisors around Jim Rutherford to cope with and handle all of the different various business items that the Canucks are grappling with at the moment. And so, you know, you have to, for practical reasons, throw optimal process a little bit out the window and know that it'll be okay because of the fact that whoever you're bringing in anyway is going to coexist within a wider sort of Rutherford extended universe, as it were, uh, under Rutherford's sort of overall governance. And and that's why I don't actually have any concern about it, despite being as process obsessed as I usually am. It might not be how you would draw the process up from scratch if you were building an NHL front office, but from where the Canucks are right now, as you say, it's kind of how you have to go about it just because you can't have that undermanned of a front office Mm -hmm. for the remainder of the offseason until you potentially uh, hire find your general manager. I was going to say, that's going to do it for the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Canucks practice still underway at Rogers Arena. You will hear live from Boost Boudreaux, uh, and you'll hear selected comments from the players that are made available as well after this media availability. We will be back tomorrow, 11 a.m., to talk more Canucks hockey. You're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.